spoken about trust, and ultimately there's the issue of trusting Krishna. We we did speak about this from the or uh, in the sense of seeing Krishna as a perfect moral being. For example, the uh, there's a direct statement about trust. There's a direct statement about trust in the oh cell phones. Anyone has a cell phone? Uh, in the Chaitanya Charitamrita, there's a statement that that faith means trust. Faith means trust. Shadasha Devishasakahe Sudit and Ishai. And that trust, that trust is a very firm conviction, a very firm conviction, that Krishna Bhakti Koile, rendering loving service to Krishna, Sarva Karma Kritahoi, all action is done. Everything that we should do or everything that we'd like to do, in fact, will be done if we render loving service to Krishna. So this trust, this confidence, is the meaning of faith. And uh, we hear so much about surrender to Krishna. The English word surrender is the English word surrender. And it conjures up images of sort of holding your hands up and, and surrendering. Like uh, after a war, one side surrenders and basically places itself entirely at the mercy of uh, another group that was formerly their enemy. So it's important to understand what this surrender really means. Uh, if you consider that as we glorify Prabhupada, Nirvisesha Shunyavadi Paschanti Deshacharini, Prabhupada delivers the Western countries from voidism and impersonalism, uh, all of us have a, how should I put it? you could say perhaps at least a trace amount of impersonalism because if we didn't we wouldn't really need to be saved from it. In a sense not not loving Krishna is a type of impersonalism. The extent to which the extent to which we are not pure devotees of Krishna to that extent uh, we are not fully personalist. We are not fully taking Krishna seriously. So it's not that we're impersonalists, it's not that we're absolutely fallen, but it's to the degree, to the degree that we acknowledge, that we really understand Krishna, to that degree we are Krishna conscious. And to the, to the degree that we don't, we're not. So, precisely... Hey, Mataji. I like, 
like your CD. Precisely because we're not pure devotees and we are conditioned souls, we are conditioned by some of these impersonal propensities and these impurities will actually influence and in some ways, uh, should I put it, distort our understanding of surrender, of what it actually means to surrender to Krishna. And so, because we want to surrender to Krishna and we want to be Krishna conscious and to do that we really have to understand what this word surrender really means because it's, it's a simple idea but it's not so simple now first thing I in order to explore this topic of what it means to trust Krishna because in a sense, if we really trusted Krishna, we would surrender to him. So to the extent that we don't surrender, we don't trust Krishna. This is, of course, not a rational position on our part, but nonetheless, that is our psychological disposition at the present time. And we're working on it. You know, we are works in progress. So, the word in Sanskrit that is usually translated as surrender is the word prapad, prapadyate. As in Bahunam, Janmanam, Ante, Gyanavan, Mam, Prabhatite. After many births, uh, one in knowledge surrenders to me. So, what is this word Prabhatite? What does it literally mean? Uh, the verb Pud, which sounds a little odd in English, but it sounds okay in Sanskrit. The word Pud, P A D, actually means to go. It means to go, and therefore that part of you that goes is called pada, your foot, or your leg. Uh, and then pra means forth, or forward. So prapad, therefore, literally means to go, to approach. It means to approach. So the word that is translated surrender to Krishna literally means to approach Krishna. Now, I would like to explore how I, I believe, based on my own experience, joining the Hare Krishna movement at a certain, well, 1969, at the age of 20, and uh, working on it ever since then, my own sense of a misconception which, uh, or an immature conception of surrender, which I believe I am now to some extent transcending or getting a more clear understanding of what this really means. This, in a sense, the most important action that we're trying to perform in our life is to surrender to Krishna. So, uh, In the impersonal, first of all, let's describe what the impersonal notion of surrender is or the impersonal notion of liberation is and then see how that idea can infiltrate and actually distort our notion of surrender to Krishna to the extent that we are conditioned souls and still have some of those propensities. In the impersonal conception, to give oneself to the truth 
is to give up the notion of being a free individual person. To give up, and in giving up one's sense of being a person, or trying to give it up because it's extremely artificial, but in trying to give it up, especially one tries to give up one sense of will. <clears throat> There's even a, a word in English, to be willful. It's actually a pejorative word. To be willful means to always be trying to impose one's will. Like, I always want to do what I want. So that, that word is willful. To be full of will. And uh, the, the words which Prabhupada <clears throat> often translated as accepting and rejecting, the mind accepts and rejects. Uh, the word for accepting is sankalpa, sankalpa vikalpa. And sankalpa really also is the word will. It's like to express your will. This is what I wish. This is my will. So the impersonalists, as well as the Stoics, try to give up this willfulness. Like, you know, it's one of the first principles of Buddhism that, like, fact number one, we're suffering. Fact number two, we're suffering because of our will, because of our material desires. Uh, in order to stop suffering, we have to give up this, these desires. So there's, there's a sense. Now, I want to take that fact, that impersonal sense of giving up your will, giving up your desires, and I want to connect it to another uh, aspect of Krishna consciousness. Hey, Sham. Haribo. Still a few good seats left. I think right over there behind third base. So, uh, we're talking about the will. We're talking about the notion of surrender and how and trying to get a clear understanding of what this word actually means. Now, first impressions are lasting, they say. First impressions are very la are, tend to be very strong. And many of us, when we had our initial conversion experience, when we were converted to Krishna consciousness, or saw the light, uh, at that point, we often moved into a Hare Krishna temple, and put ourselves under the care of certain authorities, temple commanders and temple presidents in varying degrees of emotional health and Krishna consciousness. And often, often the instruction we got was don't speculate and just do what you're told. It was, you know, Hare Krishna boot camp. And, you know, you're not paid to think. And so on. So, if you combine these two facts, that the extent to which we are conditioned or still affected by lingering impersonal notions, and for now, impersonalism, we can understand not necessarily as a formal metaphysical path where one is a card-carrying follower of Shankaracharya and puts forward a sophisticated philosophy denying the personality of Godhead. I mean, all that, that whole apparatus of formal impersonalism is not really required. 
We can simply talk about the psychological disposition to avoid, if not deny, God. As when some of us first learned about Krishna and we tried to tell some of our friends and family and we found that it was like wrong subject for conversation. So it, it can simply be a self-centeredness which predisposes a person to avoid a, any idea which would de displace them as the center of their own conscious existence. And so, so I'm using impersonalism in a broad sense to mean any, the, let's, say, let's say the tendency, the disposition for any reason, whether it's philosophical or psychological, but the disposition to simply avoid Krishna, to avoid a very personal concept of God, to avoid a notion of God which is so specific and so real that uh, it, it just becomes uncomfortable and it's like too close for comfort. So if you consider that the extent to which we are conditioned souls, we have that, I, I made a distinction There's a, there, between uh, philosophical atheism and psychological atheism. Philosophical atheism, of course, simply means that you declare yourself to be a philosophical atheist. Psychological atheism, on the other hand, simply means that we are, let's say, self-centered or so much absorbed in some form of mundane consciousness that uh, there's simply no quality space in our psyche for a dominant other like Krishna. And so therefore one, I mean self-centeredness is you could say a psychological atheism because of course this is sort of modern language to be the center. Uh, we tend to use this circular imagery like the center whereas in Sanskrit they would tend to more use a hierarchical image rather than this sort of this geometric image of being the center. They would talk about hierarchy being the highest or the greatest authority and so on. But in any, way, in any case, the extent to which to use a modern way of speaking, sort of like a geometric imagery, the extent to which we are self-centered, the extent to which we are self-centered, to that extent we are indulging in psychological atheism. So now given that fact, and then... Uh, then we join the Hare Krishna movement and we're told basically to give up our will and, and, and just to do what you're told and, and somehow I think that we many of us develop the notion that to have a will at all is somehow a lack of sincerity and submission to God even though Prabhupada always taught us that we don't give up desires, that the soul must have desires, we just give up material desires, I think that somehow this instruction being hammered into us that don't have your own desires, it's not a question of what you want to do, it's a question of what Krishna's representatives want you to do, that having this hammered into you and given your own tendency to, uh, let's say, toward impersonalism, uh, that this resulted in the idea that to be a pure devotee 
I think this is an idea even applied to Prabhupada, as I'll explain. To be a pure devotee is to be a totally neutral, denatured serving instrument. So that whatever Prabhupada says, it's Krishna speaking through him. Whatever Prabhupada does, it's Krishna acting through him. And therefore, Prabhupada himself, as a separate person, really doesn't say anything or do anything. I think you can see where this leads to. It leads to actually an impersonal notion of spiritual liberation. That when you choose to submit to Krishna, in a sense, that's the last thing you ever do. Because once you make that decision to fully give yourself to Krishna, at that point, Krishna takes over, you become an instrument of Krishna's will, Krishna speaks through you and acts through you, and you have, in a sense, given up your individual uh, preferences and desires and nature in favor of a higher cause, which is simply to be an instrument of Krishna. And actually, uh, you see this sometimes where devotees, some devotees feel it is offensive to talk about Prabhupada as doing anything or saying anything or preferring anything just because that was his nature. That's just because Prabhupada just, that's just the way he is and he liked to do things that way. Devotees actually think this is offensive to attribute a specific nature to Prabhupada as opposed to the notion that Prabhupada, whatever he does or says, whatever mood he's in, it's just, he's simply channeling Krishna. Because he's a transparent via media. So, uh, we can talk about this in various angles, but what it adds up to is uh, somewhat of an impersonal view. It's not fully impersonal, it's not the denial of Krishna's personality, but in denying really the, the unique personal nature of every soul, it's sort of halfway between personalism and impersonalism. And it also results in a reluctance or a fear on the part of many devotees to surrender to Krishna because like, I'm not ready to give up all my preferences and, and you know, my own way of doing things in favor of a, an exalted but somewhat, uh, what's the word? Well, totally like neutral, denatured existence. Like, I surrender. It's like, okay, order me, move me, speak through me. Huh? Yeah, so this... So what I want to say here is that that is really a, a misunderstanding of Krishna consciousness, which I think uh, really permeates the movement, not necessarily as an explicit doctrine, but as kind of like a, an all-pervading subtext to all kinds of things that we do. I want to make a further point that the notion, as you sometimes hear, people say like, I'm not ready to surrender to Krishna. I can't surrender at this point in my life. I can't fully surrender. Is actually itself a misunderstanding of our philosophy. It's based actually on a misunderstanding of our philosophy. And that it's, uh, it's actually irrational. So, I want to explain these things. Uh, in my relentless quest for controversy. <laughs> now pursue these things. Um, 
Oh, I told you I got the book done, right? So, first of all, to illustrate this, I want to bring up a verse from the second canto of the Bhagavatam. Famous verse. Uh, and I remember in 1972, I think just before I took sannyasa, I heard Prabhupada speak on this verse. We often quoted it. The verse is, Akama sarvakamu va, moksha kamu dharati, tivrena bhaktijogena yajeta purushampanam. This means, Akama. If a person is Akama, has no selfish desire, this is really the, the top of the chart. No material desire. Akama. Or, Sarvakama. If you have every material desire, there's not one selfish desire you haven't got. <laughs> well, now that I've explained something we can all identify with. <laughs> so, Akama, Sarvakama, Uva, Mokshakama, or if someone is a liberation monger, you know, Mokshakama, Udaradi. The idea is in every case, if the person is literally broad minded, that's literally what it means, Udaradi. If a person is broad minded, then Tivrena Bhakti Yogena with intense, intense Bhakti Yoga, Yajeta Purushankara, one should worship or sacrifice to Yajeta. Purushankaram, uh, the Supreme Person, Krishna. So, first a question. How is it possible, how is it possible to give precisely the same instruction to people who are opposite ends of life? I mean, here's someone that has no material desires, very exalted soul, and someone that has every material desire. How can, how can the Bhagavatam give exactly the same instruction to both persons? Do you know? That's actually true, and I thank you for punctuating that. But um, <laughs> but I mean, many of us experience that we we we've been intensely engaged in devotional service, and all of our desires have not. Well, you'll wonder where the comma went when you. And we. So of course, any soul at any moment can totally surrender to Krishna, but that's not really the normal path. Prabhupada said it's a gradual process. I mean, Krishna is more... So, this is the... Well, I mean, I appreciate what you said. There is, I mean, what you said is not wrong, but I, I want to bring out this other aspect of it. And that is that um, to surrender to Krishna does not mean anything other than simply presenting yourself to Krishna and placing yourself in Krishna's hands. Again, I, I think in ISKCON there's a lot of, how, how would I put it, ISKCON urban legends. There's, there's a lot of experiences we've had which, in the early days of the movement, which became paradigmatic. They became like, this is what it's all about. 
and often it's not what it's all about. Like, for example, uh, in the early days of the movement, and still to some extent, uh, when people learn about Krishna, when people get it and decide to accept Krishna consciousness, they, in the past especially, moved into a Hare Krishna temple, giving up all their possessions, and uh, totally, really just placing themselves, mind, body, and soul, under some higher authority. So that when people moved into a Hare Krishna temple, you really become a servant. You're just told, do this, do that, get up at this time, uh, you know, take a shower, this is how you take a shower, this is how much soap you can use. <laughs> These are how many strokes you can execute when brushing your teeth. <laughs> and even if you are apparently an adult, <laughs> actually everything is decided for you. Of course, even in the military boot camp they do this for a while, only they, they stop it after a while. So, in any case, this impression this impression of giving up all of your autonomy, all of your freedom, where you don't make any further choices. Once you make that choice to move into a Hare Krishna temple, that's the last thing you ever chose. For a while, until you kind of like go over the wall one night with the searchlights on you. So, because, because, this impression has been so strong, it's really in the collective consciousness of, Krishna, uh, of the movement. That's what surrender is. That's what surrender is. You go to your nearest Hare Krishna community and surrender. And you give up, basically, you give up your adult life, you give up your freedom, you give up even your independent financial instruments, you, you live in a communal setting, and that's it. And therefore, people, I, I think this is really in, in the collective consciousness of ISKCON that this is like total surrender, somehow like that. And I can't do that now because, for one thing, I, I mean, I'm so much an adult, I can't go back to that. I, I can't go back into that incubator. I can't give up my freedom. I have propensities. I have even attachments that I'm gradually working out and I don't want them ripped away from me and so on and so forth. So the, the point I wanted to make is that surrender to Krishna doesn't mean moving into, I mean it may mean at a certain point in someone's life, it may mean moving into a Hare Krishna temple or whatever, or placing yourself under some high authority, but that's not the essence of what surrender means, especially if Krishna doesn't want you to do that. So, it's like if, if you know Socrates in the, in the Socratic Dialogues written by Plato, Socrates is always searching for the essential definitions of certain key words, like in the Republic, it's trying to understand essentially what is virtue, or what is, what is a virtuous person, and so on. So, or what is courage, or what is righteousness, and so on. And, and eliminating all definitions which are not essential, which are not the most basic definition of this term. So this is basically a Socratic method, I mean, among other things. So, what is the essence of surrender? Because, obviously, it's certain Krishna may not want you to be in a certain Hare Krishna temple. 
So the essence of surrender is simply that you trust Krishna to do what's best for you. That you believe that God is not a religious fanatic. And so the notion that I can't surrender right now because if I surrender to Krishna, then I would have to da-da-da. But how do you know that? How do you know what Krishna is going to tell you to do? For example, if you know in your heart that you have certain attachments that you can't immediately give up, do you think Krishna doesn't know that? So, it comes down to a basic issue of trust. Do you believe that Krishna is practical, that he knows what he's doing? Or do you, do you believe that God is a very pure, well-meaning religious fanatic? And that you have to sort of protect yourself from Krishna who would undoubtedly engage you inappropriately and you have to engage yourself because it will all work out in the long run anyway and, and ultimately Krishna will be happier in the end if I do it this way. Whereas if I surrender to Krishna, he would give me some inappropriately rigorous program it wouldn't work out. It would lead to some type of estrangement. So I'm actually doing Krishna a favor by not fully surrendering to him right now. I mean, if you think about it, this is really an irrational idea, but it's kind of there in the subconsciousness of Viscon. The fact is, Krishna is the most practical person in the world. And the very fact that, let's say, those of us who at a certain age of, I mean many of us, not only people in my noble generation, but you know, we, we've kind of found a, a, a place for ourselves where we can be comfortable, we may not be absolutely strict, but it kind of works for us, we're stable, we have our head above the water, and we like our life. So, the point is, I mean, that is Krishna. I mean, if you've sort of found a place for yourself where you can keep your head above the water, but at the same time it's natural, it's comfortable, and uh, some people may think you're not strict enough, but it works for you. I mean, if you're in that kind of situation, the fact that it works for you is Krishna. If it wasn't Krishna, it wouldn't work. So whatever life we have, if it works for us, that is Krishna. So, so therefore my point was how can anyone say I, I'm not ready to surrender to Krishna because to say that means I'm not ready to trust Krishna I'm not ready to believe that Krishna knows what he's doing I'm not ready to believe that Krishna will actually give me a program which is practical for me so it comes down to that do I believe that Krishna is just Cool. I don't know what to say. <laughs> they know what he's doing. Or is, or is God a religious fanatic? Is, is Krishna just a much more powerful version of your uh, somewhat challenged, mentally challenged uh, former temple commander? Is Krishna just a much more powerful version of that? The answer is obvious, of course. So, also I think it's this point I've noticed in um, 
If you look at the Chaitanya Charitamrita, the Bhagavatam, we have hundreds of examples of devotees seeing Krishna face to face. We have hundreds of examples of devotees who are seeing Krishna face to face. And they are not robotic. They are not all identical. They are not simply neutral, natureless, serving instruments who just, Krishna speaks through them, Krishna acts through them, they never do anything or say anything. They're all different. The pure devotees are all different. Some of them are actually quite feisty. Some of them are shy and humble. Some of them are in between. Some of them are eccentric and or, or just exotic. I mean, if you look at Radharani's own father, that's a pretty advanced position, right? I mean, it's even probably beyond even like GBC. So, <laughs> if you look at Radharani's father, Pundarik Vidyaniti, people thought he was just like out of control. He was, you know, the way he dressed, he was flamboyant, he, he had all these... He just had all these things going on. You can read about it in the CC. And yet, in his own ecstatic ways of pure devotee. Now that we can't imitate Bundarik Vidyaniti and just indulge all of our eccentric tendencies. I mean, please don't indulge all of your eccentric tendencies. <laughs> but the point is, pure devotees seeing Krishna face to face, they have their own nature. They are people. They're each pure devotee is someone. I mean, think, think of if if you are reasonably healthy in terms of your head. I mean, emotions. If you're like basically within the normal range. If you think of the kind of people you like, friends. It's not that you just like friends who are exactly identical to you, or who will just do whatever you say. It's exactly the opposite. When we meet someone with whom there's a real bond, there's a real understanding, and yet that person is like, you know, interesting. See, now I did it. <laughs> if, if the person just like has something going on in their life, and they're different, or, or they're, just, they're just interesting, they have character, they have their own personality, it, it just, it's interesting in certain cases. If not all. I know my, I mean, Prabhupada himself says again and again that Krishna is more pleased and more attracted by those devotees who are not merely submissive, but who actually express their own feelings, who have their own way of looking at things, who treat Krishna as an equal not or as an inferior and not as a superior. So Prabhupada already taught us that. So how could... I mean, a devotee who was merely submissive had nothing to bring to the relationship. I bring to the relationship a voice box, two arms, two legs, and uh, reasonable calculating skills in my head. Now, you know, I'm just, I'm literally just an instrument. It's interesting because, I mean, Krishna said to Arjuna, just be the instrument. Just be my instrument. But, I think that it would be a serious philosophical mistake to interpret that, Nimitta Matram, as meaning that Arjun, in the totality of his emotional, mental, physical, and intellectual existence, was simply meant to be an instrument. 
What Krishna was saying in, by saying, what Krishna meant by saying Nimittamatram is that in relation to a particular decision, the decision to fight or leave, to fight or leave the battlefield, in regard to that particular decision, Arjuna should choose that option which would position him as an instrument of Krishna. He should choose that activity in that specific situation. Because after all, when Arjuna saw the universal form and he said, please forgive me Krishna, whatever I, because I, I, I uh, used to make fun of you out of madness or love, and Krishna never said, yeah Arjuna, please knock it off, you're really bothering me, no more joking. I'm God, you're not. Just, can we please agree on that now? Stop all this artificial intimacy. As we know when, I mean, consider Mother Yashoda when she looked in Krishna's mouth and saw the cosmos and she was bewildered, Krishna closed his mouth. He didn't want Mother Yashoda just to become a completely submissive, humble servant. He wanted Mother Yashoda to be Mother Yashoda. Mother Yashoda is not simply a, a very sophisticated, fully devoted computer that just, you know, at every moment responds to Krishna's will and mothers Krishna going to his will. At every... She's not just a computer. She's not in a, uh, what was that? Blade Runner. So. <laughs> The idea is that Mother Yashoda has her own personality. She has her own preferences. She has her own... But she uses all that for Krishna. Atmani Vedana. Atmani Vedana, which means sort of delivering yourself to the Lord. You have to be someone to give yourself to Krishna. When you give yourself to Krishna, it's not that you just give up being someone. Like, I'm going to stop being anyone for Krishna. I'm just going to be whatever Krishna wants me to be. It's that you have to, you can't, the reason that Atmani Vedana is number nine in a list of nine, it's like the last one, is because you cannot give yourself to Krishna until you, you know who you are, until you are somebody. There's a word in Sanskrit, Atmavan, literally to possess one who, like Van, Bhagavan, one who possesses oneself. You have to actually become your real self before you can offer yourself to Krishna. And fully. And when you offer yourself to Krishna, it's not in the sense of amputating yourself or aborting yourself. It's saying, my dear Lord Krishna, this is who I am. It's like what you see is what you get. <laughs> With all the Vedic words. This is, it's like this is me. I have certain propensities, I have a certain nature. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily we try to foist upon the Lord our conditioned, obnoxious nature. But the idea is that even when we become purified, we are someone. Every one of us has our own personality, our own nature, our own preferences, as pure souls. And it's that person, fully defined person, that then approaches Krishna and says, this is who I am. This is who I am. Now, whatever I am, 
I would like to engage myself for your pleasure. As me, as the person that I really am. And that's actually what Akhne Vedana means. And that's what surrender means. So, perhaps at this point, I will allow uh, the others to agree with me. Yes, Dilanavan? Where is self-improvement? In the context of what you were explaining. Yes. So does that mean that this is what I am and take it or leave it, or I can get better? Well, I did make the point that Atman Vedan is number nine. <laughs> Wasn't that a Beatles song, number nine? <laughs> anyway, Atman Vedana is number nine, which means that I purify myself by Shravanam, Kirtanam, Vishnu, and so on. And then when you really understand yourself as a spiritual being, you can fully offer yourself to Krishna. So if I am still a conditioned soul, if I haven't really understood myself, then what I'm offering to Krishna is a mixture of things. So in a sense, it's not, in it's not technically Atmani Vedana, it's also Ahankara Nivedana, it's also bodily concept of life Nivedana. Because I'm just offering my whole... Which is good. I mean, that's dovetailing. Like whoever I am now, I dovetail it. I use, I use myself as I am. Or engage myself in Christian service. I become purified by doing that. So that if I'm passionate, I just serve Krishna passionately. And by that contact with Krishna, the passion becomes purified. Just a second question. Go ahead. Two for one tonight. So if I don't do that, if I don't offer myself as I am, then I assume I'm being artificial. Well, if I don't offer myself, if I try to be something that I'm not, yes. I'm offering something that's artificial. And you ultimately can't, ultimately you can't offer it because it's not really you. I mean, it just doesn't work. Now, let's say I join the Hare Krishna movement and I'm like seething with lust or, or greed or something. I've got, in other words, I'm so heavily conditioned that if I'm allowed to act spontaneously, I will become a menace to the world and to myself. So at that, I mean, there, there are certain stages in life where the best thing you can do is just what you're told. I know myself, when I first joined the Hare Krishna movement, I was told, do this, do that, and I'm sure it was the best thing for me. I didn't do everything I was told. I remember one time the temple commander, who had certain unusual habits, uh, so he once said to me that uh, unless you please me you can't please Krishna and uh, I burst out laughing <laughs> even though I was I mean I was actually a, I think a serious young Prabhu I was a serious young Lord and um, and I was actually following the program very strictly and in general, in general doing what I was asked but when he sort of upped the ante and said that, you know, no one goes to the Father except through the temple commander, <laughs> I started, I burst out laughing. He, he, he was, of course, very annoyed. But, but still, at a, at a certain point in our life, it may be best just to do what we're told because it's the safest path and we need it at that time. But oh, it, it's like with a child. I mean, you have children. The older a child gets, the more mature a child gets, the more freedom you give the child. It, it's, it's like what we were talking about yesterday, the guru-disciple relationship. 
a guru who is just trying to keep the disciples strictly obedient actually doesn't understand his job description. The Bhagavatam clearly says that the first class disciple, without being asked, just knows what to do. The second class disciple, when asked, does it. The third class disciple, when asked, just doesn't even do it. So cannot, by his or her own ingenuity, nor by obedience, can that person do the right thing. So, the, I mean, like your children, isn't your goal as a parent to somehow or other guide your children to becoming mature, autonomous, responsible human beings and devotees? So, in the same way, that's what Krishna is trying to do with us. Krishna is not trying to bludgeon us into submission. Why would Krishna, when Prabhupada already said Krishna is not so pleased, simply by reverential... It's like that great scene in Monty Python, the Holy Grail. Oh, it's really funny. Where uh, suddenly there's like this, I don't know, thunder line or something in this. Sort of like this box appears in the sky. It's real funny. And it opens. There's God. So like a, with a hinge, square puppet jaw. Anyway, so, so God appears in the sky with a white beard and then King Arthur immediately becomes very submissive and God says, what are you doing? And King Arthur says, I'm averting my eyes, my Lord. And the Lord says, will you stop groveling? I hate it when people grovel. So, I mean, Prabhupada said that um, Krishna is not as pleased simply by that submission. So Krishna... Krishna is not trying to turn us into simply just totally submissive, surrendered things like all I can do is what you tell me to do. That's not what Krishna wants. It's not pleasing to Krishna. If at a certain point we are so diseased, like the doctor says, take this pill, stay indoors, okay, you know, you're sick, just you need to get out of danger. But Krishna's goal is that we become free, autonomous beings. Krishna wants to associate with other free souls who do the right thing, not out of obedience, but out of love. And a bona fide guru is supposed to help the disciple to become a mature, free soul. The obedience is just to get you there. It, it, it's like a doctor, client, uh, patient. Relationship. The doctor tells the patient, you need to do, do this and that in order to free the patient from a problem, in order to restore the patient to a free, independent life. So, so, Brahmatirtha, is he back there? Or did you walk out? No, he didn't walk out. Yes. 
true. So therefore, the ultimate Atman Veda doesn't occur until we're, we're purified. However, uh, I think there's something of value, of necessary value, in having an authentic relationship with Krishna. In other words, knowing yourself well enough to say, this is who I am. This is the good part, this is the not so good part, but that's where I'm at right now. That's just, that's just the condition I'm in right now. And so whatever I am right now, whatever condition I'm in, I'm presenting myself for service. I would like to do something. I would like to be useful to your mission, given the way I really am. Uh, yes. Um, you are touching a point that I, I have had a lot of conflict, maybe philosophical conflict. For most of my spiritual life, when trying to find out who, who I am and who I want to, who Christian want me, what Christian want me to do, I was acting under the idea that uh, there was like a like a job description for me already set up by Krishna and that I have to decode that. It's like a process of decoding. We even say that sometimes part of our philosophy was that uh, we have an eternal relationship with Krishna yes. which we kind of have to get back and discover what it was and just fit the... Yes. And for most of my spiritual life I moved that idea. Like I have to find out what Krishna want from me and what my job definition. And then lately, I, I find myself changing a little bit to what you're speaking, that it's not so much about what Krishna want from me, but what I want, or who I want to be, in relationship to Krishna. So it's a lot of it. Yeah, there, there's, actually, there's, actually, there's, there's actually a balance there. Because Krishna does want something for us. But what Krishna wants is, among other things, that we be mature souls that can think for ourselves. I mean, see, so, and yet, Prabhupada says in the Isopanishad that because we don't know that there's a perfect, complete plan for us, we try to come with our own plan. But it, in other words, these two things are not contradictory. If you realize that Krishna wants you to be someone, Krishna doesn't simply want you to be a denatured, robotic, neutral serving instrument. But Krishna wants you to be yourself. He wants you to be someone. Then, in searching for Krishna's plan for me, I'm searching for the best possible way to achieve my own freedom. Because the best way to become free, the best way to discover myself is to be in touch with Krishna because he knows the best possible way for me to achieve that. And ultimately, the, the, the proper use of our freedom is loving service to Krishna. So, what you describe is to me to see like a process of, of co-creation. It's not entirely up to Krishna. It's not entirely up to us. We're both creating that relationship together. Well, Krishna wants you... I mean, you think of a, of a parent with a child. The parent wants the child to grow and, and, and to develop the child's own integrity 
and ingenuity and intelligence. The parents, good parents, want to see a child becoming intelligent and creative. It's actually pleasing to the parents. If you discover that your child has some talent, some artistic talent, some whatever, isn't it? I mean, it actually pleases the parents to see the child's talents. And then you encourage the child. You want to facilitate. Oh, oh, you'd like to do this. Okay, you know, what can I do to help you to develop your propensity? And then if the child takes that propensity and says, I want to use this to please my family, I mean, then everything's perfect. So it's actually a reciprocal thing. Yes, Titik Shah. So what if you're attempting to be your authentic self before Krishna, you're conscious of trying to go forward and becoming more self-realized, and that's not good enough for your peers and those around you? Really? <laughs> I can't believe anything like that could ever happen. <laughs> So, um, again, balance. There's nothing like balance, what the Greeks called the golden mean. Because there are two extremes. Let's define the extremes so, you know, the two ways you can go off the road into the bushes. One extreme is just sort of becoming a slave of public opinion. It's like people that don't know you that well and don't care about you that much, you sort of give to them the authority to tell you what your life's going to be. So that I think is one extreme. The other extreme is to be reckless and to ignore even good advice. Because after all, as I explained in the first session, we are private individuals, but we are also social creatures. That's part of the beta beta. Each of us is a unique private individual, but each of us is a social creature. We are one and different from each other one with and different from each other. So just as we acquired language socially, just as we acquire thought and culture in a sense socially, because there's no real thought without language. So uh, in a sense, it's in relationship with good people that are my true friends that I actually can best come to understand who I am. Again, combined with my you know, quality time with myself. I love that. I mean, I love people, and I also love quality time with, my, and with Krishna. Like I was just on a three and a half month writing retreat, and uh, it was just me, you know, the Lord and I. The Lord was there. And so, you know, going out for long walks, walking for miles, and just chanting, thinking about Krishna, just thinking about my life. And I, mean, I personally, to me, that's actually, that's actually a very important component of my life. Quality time just with the super soul and myself. And probably. At the same time, uh, like everyone else in the universe, I need and benefit greatly from the association of good people who are true friends. So there has to be this balance where we don't, we're, we're not slaves to public opinion, but we're also not uh, recklessly independent. And we, and, we act, and we appreciate and honor 
good, you know, real friendship and good advice. Judged. Here comes the judge. Um, I would say that real friends. If I have a, if you have a real friend, that person really likes you, is enthusiastic about you. Like, I'm really glad you exist, and I think you're really going to go places because you're a good person. But I think this is really not in your self-interest. So what, what they may be judging is not you, but a particular behavior which they think is not worthy of you. As opposed to someone actually judging you. Because without judgments, I mean, without judgments, you literally cannot get out of bed in the morning. Because that's a judgment. Because you might stay in bed. You might just try to, I don't know, recreate Kafka's beetle or something. You know, the, the metamorphosis. So... I mean, I mean, every time you do anything, every intentional activity is based on a judgment. Whenever you choose anything like get out of bed, brush your teeth, walk down the street, everything you do intentionally, you choose to do when you might have done something else. So every intentional activity entails a judgment. And for example, if I see someone, let's say, doing something self-destructive, like taking certain kinds of drugs or you know eating junk food or or just act or just living inappropriately if i don't judge that behavior why shouldn't i do it i mean what what restrains me from emulating that behavior if not my judgment that that's not appropriate it's not, it's not healthy so every one of us has chosen every one of us has a set of values and what are values if not judgments? So, and some of the most judgmental people I've ever met are the people that keep telling everyone else not to be judgmental. I mean, they, it's like never say never. They, anyway, not the best and the brightest. So, so judgmental means I think I think in the, in the pejorative sense, the valid application of this term would be if I judge you as opposed to saying I think you're great and therefore because you are a really valuable person this is probably not a, a good idea for you as opposed to saying that no it's you that choosing what I thought, what I thought was the high road, 
if you're not as strict as I am, if you're not, then it's just because you could do it, but you're choosing not to. You're just being a rascal. And uh, since then, I've come to slightly modify that view. And I, I actually see that, in a sense, most people do the best they can. And if someone is acting a certain way, I think in most cases, just because that's what they can do. Of course, this can be dangerous. We can't be self-indulgent. There's always extremes on both ends. One extreme is being very judgmental. The other extreme is being uh, self-indulgent and reckless. So, I would say this. After you've tried your best, not before. After you've tried your best, whatever you come up with, Krishna is with you. If you, if you, and when I say try your best, I don't mean to the point of becoming, you know, neurotic, virgin, unpsychotic, or, or just becoming just crazy and frenetic and guilt-ridden and just nuts. I mean, just you know, in a healthy, balanced way, try your best. And once you've tried your best, whatever you come up with, that's, that's what you can do right now. And just keep trying. And know that what Krishna ultimately wants from us is that we try. So if you're trying, you're pleasing Krishna. Yes? What were you writing for three months? Was it writing for three months? All the world's waiting to hear anecdotes from my childhood. You know that, I was saying this earlier today, you know that, I'm just kidding, that airplane movie, that movie called Airplane, where some guy keeps driving people to suicide by telling his life story? <laughs> it was a novel. I'm trying, I'm trying my best to break out of sort of a little niche and, and reach a much wider audience. So basically, I took several years with the help, some help of my friends. Actually, Shama was very helpful in other devotees. She was one of my psychology advisor. And just and, and just trying to study the uh, that particular activity or vocation of novel writing. And I tried to understand it, tried to, to understand the contemporary art of narration. And then I, I've written a novel which is uh, pretty Krishna conscious. And um, I'm hoping it'll reach a very wide audience. Now I have to do it. So, that's what I did. And also I did it as a way of trying to learn the art of novel writing so that I could then go back to the Mahabharata and present it in a way that will actually reach a wide audience because there are dozens and dozens and dozens of Mahabharatas and collectively they're kind of underwhelming the world right now. So, anyway, my belief is that we can objectively diagnose why the Mahabharata has not succeeded in reaching a much larger audience. There are objective reasons that can be identified and uh, the narration can be adjusted in certain ways which will overcome these obstacles and it can actually become a very widely successful narration. So based on that assumption, and also of course I, I, have, I assume that what Krishna actually did when he appeared in this world is the greatest story. What Krishna actually did is the greatest story. The Mahabharata, uh, uh, specifically, 
the Bhagavatam says Mahabharata was specifically composed, Vyasa composed it to reach the clueless people of this age. That's why it, it wasn't meant to be some intellectual, esoteric thing for the culture elite of the world. It was actually meant for the people. It's meant to be for the people. It's meant to be a... Every society at whatever point in history tends to have a great epic narrative, like some great story. The Romans had the Aeneid, and the Greeks had the works of Homer, and the Iliad and the Odyssey. Up till recently, Europe had the Bible. And now you get sort of like these periodic great narrations like Star Wars. For a while, Star Wars was like you know, the great narration, the great narrative, or Lord of the Rings or whatever. So there are certain, you know, there are stories, there's, there are certain movies or books that are just kind of entertaining. But certain stories rise above that and actually become sort of like epic narratives for an entire civilization. And the Mahabharata, in a sense, plays that role in India along with the Ramayana. But it, it, I believe it's actually meant for the world. It never says in the Bhagavatam it's just meant for India. So I believe it has to be presented in a way that it can actually fulfill its purpose, Vyasa's purpose, in reaching people in general. So in order to achieve that, I first uh, wrote another novel trying to figure out how you do that stuff. Yes, Neela. do unto yourself. <laughs> In other words, we are souls. And in that sense, we're not more or less than other souls. If you really see with that vision of equality, samadarshana, then why should you see yourself? Why should you be unkind to yourself and kind to others? And why be unkind to anyone? Being kind to everyone, why not include yourself? It's kind of a bizarre idea that I'm not part of everyone. So there's sort of a balance between, I mean, the middle path between self-flagellation and self-indulgence. It's like when you go to a gym. Okay, here's a gym example. Everybody woke up. It's, uh, Let's say you have a personal trainer and you go to the gym. Obviously, you have to be exercised. If you go to the gym and you're not really challenging yourself, you're not coming to the point of resistance, you're not getting a good workout. Of course, if you do too much, you can hurt yourself. Do too little, there's no benefit. So spiritual life is just like that. The guru is a personal trainer and you're just supposed to work out. If you try, if you if you do too much, it'll hurt you. If you do too little, there's no benefit. It's just you know, Guru's personal trainer, and the planet Earth is just like it's just a big gym. And that's what we have to understand. It's like you know, you, you go to gym, you go around to the different machines, like for different muscles and everything. And that's actually what's happening to us throughout the day. As we go through, like like someone comes up, some really obnoxious person, and insults us or just whatever pushes our buttons, as they say. That's just one of the exercise machines. Okay, get onto the tolerance machine. And I want you to do, you know, I want you to do 12 repetitions with a very heavily obnoxious person. 
That's all it is. It's like everyone we meet, if someone praises me, that's the vanity machine. Okay, get on the vanity machine. And then that's why we shouldn't get so disturbed as we go through life because every time something happens to us, it's just one of the exercise machines. The planet is just... Krishna created this planet as a spiritual gym. Prabhupada is the ultimate personal trainer. And every situation, you know, if we, if I could say my body gets sick or this or that happens, it's just, a, it's just, a, it's part of my spiritual workout. So somehow or other, if we could see it this way, it's like if you, let's say you go to an exercise machine, you're like, you know, doing something like this, pushing some weight up, and you say to your trainer, "Hey, get these weights off that," you know, it, it, it's. I don't want to, like you're making me sweat. It's like you think something's wrong because it, it doesn't go right up. It's like, get those weights off there. Anyway, that's, I think we should, that's life. Life as, you know, the ultimate workout. Yes? Again, we, you could say we know what's right, but we don't always do it because we don't perfectly know what's right. I mean, we know it, but there's a part of us that still hopes against hope that maybe I can defy the laws of nature and actually enjoy this world. So we gradually learn. We should try our best. I don't think there's just like a silver bullet that suddenly... I mean, I, I don't think there's necessarily like a technique. Like, you just do this technique, you will immediately surrender to Krishna, you will immediately overcome all of your bad habits, you will become a great devotee, and it's just this technique. I think the technique is just bhakti yoga, and there are no... I mean, sometimes devotees sort of like inquire, like, give me some special technique, like... Like, as far as my miserable japa, if I could, like if you just, you know, if you actually put a, uh, a little camphor ball under your tongue and a picture of Lord Nasingadeh before your eyes, you will never again offend the Holy Name. It's like... <laughs> we're always looking for these little, like, silver bullets, these little techniques, like, if you take the blue pill... You will become a pure devotee. If you take the red pill, you will become a karmi. <laughs> but actually, it's just, it's the good old bhakti yoga. It's trying to change your rounds, trying to give yourself to Krishna. It's a gradual process. So we just have to try our best, I think. So, anything else? We, yes. Oh. Hey, how you doing, Rosa? Thought you were raising your hand. But... <laughs> yes, 
Yes, Balaji. Balahari and I are old friends from Laguna Beach. Actually, I uh, I missed his Yash Puja <laughs> celebration, so I'll say it here that, um, what was it, 1987, I think, I first went to Laguna Beach, wasn't it? To stay? Or 88, I had that little, where Makunda Goswami used to stay, little cottage. Balahari was a president, and he was, he, as we know, he's great. Kirtans and Bajans used to, I remember the most wonderful Guru Pujas, he would sing. He was temple president and uh, with his wife, Koshiru, was doing a great job, and I stayed there for about a month or two. Those were happy times, huh? Anyway, your question? You have to love yourself in order to love others. I don't know. Loving yourself, uh, there may be more delicate ways to phrase that. I think what we should love is our love. We should love our life in the sense of, I mean, I mean, our life may not be perfect, but we should love the fact that we exist, that that. I mean, to get to be an existing soul, that, that Krishna eternally causes us to exist, that we have infinite opportunities under Krishna's guidance. We have infinite opportunities. What we should, li- what we should love is, is, is being alive and being part of Krishna. Because, because who am I? I'm part of Krishna. I have no separate existence. Thinking that I exist separately from Krishna is illusion. That's what illusion basically is. And so I love. I, I think it's if I love Krishna, if I love Krishna, and then I see that I'm part of Krishna, and, and if I see myself as Krishna sees me, Krishna loves me somehow or other, which shows he's quite liberal. So Krishna loves me, and therefore. I must see some value in myself because Krishna sees it. So I think that if we have Krishna esteem, if you take Krishna seriously, you must have self-esteem. Because Krishna takes you seriously. Krishna is in our heart. Krishna loves us. Krishna is investing in us. Krishna is going to stay in our heart forever until he gets us back to Godhead. Krishna sees us as worth millions of years of effort. Krishna sees each one of us as so valuable that he personally, Krishna personally, is going to invest millions and billions of years of effort into bringing us back home because he considers us to be that valuable. So actually, we do not have intrinsic value our value is contingent in the sense that our value depends upon Krishna. Krishna gives us value. We are valuable because we are part of Krishna. We are valuable because Krishna loves us. So to have low self-esteem is not to take Krishna seriously. Because Krishna thinks very highly of us. He may think we're acting like jerks right now, but 
Krishna sees the real person. Krishna sees infinite value in us. So it's so Krishna consciousness does it all. It's one-stop shopping. If we're Krishna conscious, we'll never have self-esteem problems. If we're really Krishna conscious. And if by watering the root of the tree, you water all the branches, guess what? Each one of us is a little twig or leaf. So it's not that if I love Krishna, I'll just love other souls. If I love Krishna, I'll also love myself because I'm also part of Krishna. <coughs> is back there? Did you have a... Espanol? Buena pregunta. She, uh, this devotee asked, how can we understand or fulfill that idea of being lower in the straw in the street and the same time have self-esteem? No problem. No Eso no es un problema. ¿Entiendes inglés, verdad? Sí. Uh, it's very simple. To think, to see myself as lower than the straw in the street means that I don't see, it's just what I said actually, I don't see myself as important by myself. But I see Krishna as all important. I see Krishna's devotees as all important. And because Krishna accepts me, and because the real devotees accept me, therefore I accept myself. So again, it's based on my Krishna consciousness. It's not an independent idea. I mean, Prabhupada, being a pure devotee, saw himself as lower than the straw on the street, but he could still go into public places and blast the impersonalists and blast the atheists and act with courage very dynamically. Prabhupada didn't just walk around with his head bent down. He went out there and conquered the world. But he did it. He, what did Prabhupada tell me, actually? He said, um, when I took sannyas, actually, but a day or two after I took sannyas in 1972, uh, at the age of, uh, let's see, that was how many years ago? That was, that was 30, oh my God. That was 35 years ago, so that means I was four years old. <laughs> I was actually very precocious. They made this, this cute, cute little dunda for me. <laughs> Actually, I took sannyas when I was still in diapers. <laughs> anyway, so Prabhupada... Oh, at the same time that I took sannyas in May 1972, Prabhupada called the GBC to have a meeting. I wasn't on the GBC then. In those days, there was no annual festival in Mayapur. There was no annual GBC meeting in Mayapur. The GBC would meet simply whenever Prophet called them to meet. And so he called them at that time, and they redivided the world, or something. And it was decided that, for example, Bhagwan left his zone in the Midwest U.S. and he went to Southern Europe. And I think Hansaduda, who had been in in Berkeley went to Northern Europe all kinds of adjustments anyway because Bhagwan was sent to Southern Europe he wanted to open Spain and uh, so he, he got the GBC to vote that I 
as a new sannyasi should go to Spain. So I went into Prabhupada's room around that time, and Prabhupada said, so what is your program? Once, okay, you just took sannyasi, I want to make sure I take sannyasi and just like drive, you know, 90 miles an hour into a brick wall. <laughs> I was 20, actually I was 23 years old. Anyway, so Prabhupada, you know, like a father said, okay, now you took sannyasi, what are you going to do now? So I said, well, uh, GBC voted I should go to Spain. And Prabhupada said, first you have to get books in Spanish and then go. And then he said, when I came to your country, Prabhupada said, when I came to your country, he said, when I was getting off the boat, when I was walking down the ladder off the boat, he said, I didn't know, I didn't know whether I should turn right or left. I didn't even know where I was going. He said, but I wasn't afraid. My confidence was my books. He said, he, Prabhupada said, I brought 200 trilogies, like, you know, the first Bhagavatam was in three parts. And Prabhupada brought 200 sets. He said, my confidence was the books. My confidence was the books. Even though I didn't even know which way to go. So, uh, our confidence is Krishna. So, be, we are confident. We are, we are bold. We are dynamic. But because of Krishna. Otherwise, uh, we're, we should be, we should be humble, but we should be bold for Krishna. So, entiendes? Más o menos. Yes, okay, with other people. With other people, uh, it's Krishna. I, I mean, there's a sense in which, it's a very good question. It's a very intelligent question, for which, of course, you'll be punished. But <laughs> let's say, for example, let's say, for example, I meet some person. So, even it's like this, this type of ecstatic humility. I may feel that I am very fallen, and, this, and so on and so forth. But Krishna. Krishna is pushing me forward in a very wonderful way. So we can be very buoyant, very enthusiastic, confident, bold, but it's based on an ecstatic realization of Krishna. In a sense, we're seeing ourselves through Krishna's eyes. If I see myself alone, then I can say, well, I'm, I'm nothing, or I'm, I'm very low, but we're actually seeing ourselves or experiencing our life through Krishna's eyes. It's like a loving father. Krishna, Krishna is thinking, yes, you can do it. You're my child. You can go out and do this service. You can do so many wonderful things. Because Krishna is cheering, cheering on his own children. It's, it's like, you know, my kids are playing in a soccer league. And the soccer moms and the soccer dads, they're up in the stadium, like, you know, yelling for their kids. Come on, you know, come on, Freddie. Come on, Felipe. So... <laughs> So Krishna is the ultimate soccer dad, you could say. I mean, in the sense that Krishna is inspiring us to serve him and he's, he's actually enthusiastic. And that was Prabhupada's spirit. We need to remember that Prabhupada was so enthusiastic about his disciples. He really had an attitude of, you can do it, I know you can do it. And so, 
a devotee gets caught up in this enthusiasm of Krishna himself and of Prabhupada for us. Otherwise, apart from that, if I just sort of, under my own steam, if I just look at myself, myself, it's like, ooh, I guess I'm not so great. I have so many faults. But then we just get caught up in Krishna's enthusiasm. And it doesn't matter. Está claro? Oh. No, the second question was simply, uh, like, how does this work out in relation to other people? Like, you're actually in relationship with other people. How, did, how you know? How does this distinction work? Wasn't that it? Así fue, ¿verdad? Más o menos. So, we have a few more minutes left. Yes. Makrash, I need your help to clarify something. Because you said that Trisha loves, and I, I, it's not that I don't believe that Trisha doesn't love me or love all the devotees. But for example, in chapter 12 of the Bhagavad Gita, Trisha says in different verses, for example, that one that is equal in God, happiness and distress, is very dear to me. Yes. That person with doesn't, is, doesn't get affected by the ordinary course of activities. It's very yes. clear to me like that. Yes. And I may not fall completely in that category. And also there are some other verses where Krishna says in the in the measurement that you surrender to me, I will, you know. In la medida. In yeah, la medida. to the extent, yes. yes. I'm sorry, I don't have it. That's okay. No problem. And therefore, yes. uh, I'm not following falling in those categories. Well, but you're not, but you're not completely outside of those categories either. I'm trying to be in those categories, but I'm saying where in the scriptures it says Krishna loves me. Krishna says priyosi me. You're, you're, which is sort of Sanskrit way of saying I love you. You are beloved to me. He says it many times in Gita. What? which literally means I have a good heart for every living being Surit. Prabhupada translates it well-wishing friend literally means good-hearted Surit. well no what Krishna says is what, what that means in context is I don't favor anyone. It's the exact same thing my parents always told me and my brothers. That we love you all equally and we're not favoring anyone. Even though the parents, you know, maybe one child's being punished and one child's being rewarded because of their different behavior. The parents love all their children equally. So Krishna, when Krishna says I'm equal, he's just saying the same thing our parents always told us. Simple. But you're not not in that category either. You may not be complete. You know, we are works in progress. We just have to. I mean, Krishna, if you're trying and you're pleasing Krishna, and you'll get there. Basaji God. Yes, back there. Okay. 
Yeah, it says it Krishna. Si Krishna está enseñando de eso. No, las personas. Si nosotros estamos con el Señor. Sí, que los, sí no, que, que a uno siempre le están diciendo eso es carne, eso es su carne. Entonces yo quiero saber si Krishna también está por encima de nuestro carne. That's a, people always say that this is your karma, that whatever happens is your karma, so is Krishna above our karma? Huh? Sí. Well, Krishna, is, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, not that they cause I am not responsible for anyone's sins or good deeds. So, someone else? Uh, any male body devotees? No. Yes, Murkunda? Enthusiastic in school, you know, 
So a positive attitude, enthusiasm, does help you to do better. But that does not mean that we're omnipotent or that we can... Or that you're not going to obtain more than what your karma... Yeah, exactly. So then you're nothing. It's like, it's, it's, no, it's, it's like, that's the other extreme. It's like those books, it's like those books like How to Make a Million Dollars in 11 Minutes While You're Sleeping and, <laughs> and Simultaneously Lose 30 Pounds. <laughs> What I've noticed is, like those, all those books like How to Get Rich, is that, at least from my life experience, I know a lot of rich people, but they never read those books, and all the people that read those books aren't rich. <laughs> Except the person that wrote the book. <laughs> yes? I have, a, I have a question more related to um, yesterday. Okay. or outgrowing or giving up the relationship. 
It's just that's what the relationship is for. The guru is trying to help you to become an autonomous individual. And I think the disciple in seeing the guru, I mean, even based, based on what you just said, it seems like you got it right. I'm just saying we shouldn't mythologize, we shouldn't envy the guru or mythologize the guru. We should just... I can say myself that as far as what I'm doing, what I understand that I'm doing, is at a certain point I began trying to serve Prabhupada and Prabhupada somehow or other was pleased and now I'm trying to help other people to serve Prabhupada's mission and that's and of course devotional service is mystical we are connected to Krishna Krishna acts through all of us in different ways and Krishna can act through the Guru or does act through the Guru but in general I don't think we should have like an overly magical idea it's just the Guru is a person who is faithfully serving the Prampara and who has developed a certain confidence to help other people to, to serve Prabhupada's mission nicely. I mean, that's, that's what I think, that's what I, it seems like, that's what it seems like I'm doing, or trying to do. Great Solji, Mahatma. So let's say someone has a guru. Someone sitting in this room has a guru that they know doesn't exactly agree with what they're saying, but they agree with what they're saying. How should they deal with Wait, if someone has a guru that... Someone has a, someone's sitting in this room and they're listening to you and they're... It's resonating with them. They're appreciating it. It's You're expressing what they're feeling, but they know their guru doesn't exactly feel the way you do. Their guru may be kind who wants to disciple more dependent or whatever, and if they don't feel comfortable with that, how, what do they do? How do they go, where do they go from here? Well, practically, I think we should respect senior devotees in general. It should be, we should live, we should have a generous culture, a culture where we are willing to honor and respect other people, even if they're not perfect. And in the case of the guru, if a guru wants things a certain way, I would say that, um, how should I put it? To accept a guru, the purpose of a guru-disciple relationship is to help the disciple develop integrity and the ability to engage in moral reasoning and spiritual reasoning. So we should honor senior devotees, we should follow normal etiquette, and at the same time we should try seriously to understand what Prabhupada's intention is for us. Because after all, every guru is a servant of Prabhupada in this context. And all of us are following Prabhupada. Prabhupada's a founder acharya. Prabhupada is every is equally everyone's founder acharya. It's not that Prabhupada and this is the position Prabhupada really claimed for himself. I happen to have Prabhupada as my Diksha Guru. But when Prabhupada presented himself to the public formally, he didn't say, Hi, I'm the Diksha Guru of Iskon. Something that the Ritvik people can't quite grasp. The way the way Prabhupada presented himself always was, I'm the founder Acharya of Iskon. So it's not that because I am Prabhupada's Diksha disciple, he's more my founder Acharya than he is the founder Acharya of my disciples. And it's not necessarily that I have a closer relationship with Prabhupada than my disciples. If we want to be philosophically accurate here. If I have a closer relationship with Prabhupada, it's not because I'm his Diksha disciple, it's simply because I earned it. If it's the case. 
So, because if it were true, if it were true that I have a closer relationship with, with Prabhupada than the next generation, then it would follow logically that as time goes by, each generation would get farther and farther away from Prabhupada. And therefore, necessarily, the movement would get weaker and weaker. And that, that would be an irrevocable fact. Therefore, it, as we know, but that's not what's going to happen. So it cannot be the case that by mere temporal proximity, being closer in time, that someone is closer to Prabhupada. If a Prabhupada disciple, for example, is not able to really serve him, but the, a, a devotee of the next generation, or the next one after that, is dedicated to Prabhupada, doing exactly what Prabhupada wanted, how can we say the first person is closer? Therefore, Prabhupada, in the position in which he really, on his books, it said, you know, his divine grace or whatever, A.C. Bhakti on something, Prabhupada found Richard Viscon. Prabhupada wanted that to be there. And when there was a plot by the Gaudiya Math in 1970 to usurp Prabhupada's position, which you can read about in the Lamrita, Prabhupada discovered the plot when they removed this title, Foundracharya. Because they, the idea was that no, ISKCON is not really legitimate as a standalone institution. The Gaudiya Math is a real thing. Prabhupada's not the founder of the Gaudiya Math, therefore he shouldn't claim to be the founder of Acharya. And ISKCON should be assimilated into the Gaudiya Math, especially its bank accounts and property should be assimilated. Anyway, so there was, the, there was actually this plot. It was a formal conspiracy, actually. And Prabhupada discovered it. So for Prabhupada, he didn't put on his books A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada Diksha Guru of ISKCON. He put Foundra Acharya. So Prabhupada's real position is as the Foundra Acharya of ISKCON because it's the Foundra Acharya that makes you an Acharya with a capital A. I'm an Acharya with a small a. You know, and many other people here, even in this room, are Acharyas with a small a. Prabhupada is the Acharya with a capital A. And therefore, I mean, if you are in ISKCON, my disciples have, can have a more intimate relationship with Prabhupada than I do if they surrender more. It's not like, so, so it's just Prabhupada's equally available to everyone depending on your degree of devotion. So I guess we're going to be terminated here. Shri Prabhupada Tijaya.